Before we hear God's word, let's first pause and ask God to open our hearts to hear what God is saying to us today. Lord our God, you are always there and always speaking, always wishing for us to know more of you, more of who you've created us to be and redeemed us to be. So I pray for this moment now, this this one hour, this one segment of our week, of our life, that you create in us a stillness so quiet that we can hear you speaking. Stillness in us so that we can know you are near. And in all things, be changed for the good of your purposes and for the good of this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'll be reading Mark chapter 8, 27, for 27th verse through chapter 9, the ninth verse. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, what do people say, or who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said all this quite openly. And Peter then took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory 
of the Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with him anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Um, thank you. Uh, so today is Transfiguration Sunday, which in the life of the church across the earth is Sunday in which we read this story and remind ourselves of this moment in Jesus's life right before stepping into Lent, this 40-day season of self-reflection and thinking about ways in which we can turn from current habits and ways we're going to seek God, seek connection with God, and find in that connection the life-giving thing that we were created for. So we tell this story. And transfiguration um, uh, isn't a word that we typically use, and it, it refers to the change or appearance of form of a person or thing, usually in a positive way. And this week I kept wondering and thinking, what does this passage about Jesus being transfigured really mean for you and me today? And after reflecting on it for a while, I came to two things. That first, Jesus invites us to a cross-shaped life of transfiguration, each one of us. And secondly, that we are created for something really, really, really good beyond what we currently know now. So I want to unpack that as we walk through this passage together. So that when you exit through the doors today, you'll be able to hold on to maybe two hopeful things. 
that you get to figure out how to express who Jesus is in your own life and in the particular ways that you are created. And secondly, that, that you know that God has planned a future for you and for this world that is better than you could know. So let's kind of walk through this passage to understand those things. It has two scenes, and you might have caught on to this. The scene where Jesus is just walking with his disciples and he's teaching them about something. And the second of it happens up on a mountaintop. The first scene in which Jesus invites us to a cross-formed life of transfiguration begins in this way. Jesus and his disciples are walking down the road. They've been traveling through the northern region of of the northern country of, of Israel. And as a reference point, Caesarea Philippi is in the north, about 100 miles north of, of Jerusalem, the holy city where everything took place. Um, and as a reference, it would be kind of like what Albany is in reference to the southern Adirondacks. It would be as if Jesus were walking around in the southern Adirondacks, going from village to village, doing his ministry and teaching about the good news of God. So they're walking from village to village. The Jesus movement is gaining excitement. He's brought healing to those who need it, restored estranged people to their community, healed deep wounds of conflict, fed the hungry alongside the rich, befriended sinners, and even irked off the religious establishment. Not a bad job, Jesus. And it comes to a point, and he asks, who, who do people say that I am? This happens in verse 27, if you're following along in the Bible. The disciples look at each other and, and grumble and go, eh, I guess like maybe John the Baptist, or some people think that you're that great prophet Elijah, or just another prophet coming to gain a following. Okay, Jesus said, pausing for a moment. But who do you say that I am? It's a question that Jesus not only asked those disciples there that day, but everyone who learns about him. Jesus is not some neutral character in the history of the world, but we have to decide who he was and who he is. Was he some crazy man or just another prophet, another politician like any politician that we've seen in our lives? Some revolutionary, or is he truly the benevolent creator cloaked in flesh, the thing that he claimed to be. You have seen me, Jesus said. We have traveled far. You know my heart. You know my mind. You know my mission to overcome every evil, every ill, every grip of death that this world has hold on you to keep it captive. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, sweet, bold, courageous, right answered, even before he fully understands it, Peter says, you are the Messiah. Now it's important as you're following along to understand about Peter's perspective and the way he's seeing Jesus. 
interpreting it from his own lens and his own understanding as he's raised in the Jewish tradition. Because when Jesus asks this question and he says, you are the Messiah, Peter believes the Messiah is going to be a strong warrior king like David from of old to rescue the people of Israel from among the nations and among the tyrants that hold them down. Messiah, by the way, is the Hebrew word for chosen one or anointed one of God. And Christ isn't, isn't Jesus' last name, though I think I believe that through like maybe high school. <laughs> um, it's, it's a title. Uh, Christ is the Greek term for Messiah or anointed one, chosen one. Peter saw the power in Jesus to overcome the Romans who were pushing their boots down on the necks of the Jewish people and everyone else in the world. Peter saw Jesus possessed the truth and the justice to make the crooked politicians and the system straight and right. And he possessed the purity of heart and life that would lead the people in true worship and devotion to the one God. You are the Messiah. You are the one that will make things right. I think in Peter we can see a little bit of ourselves. The part of us that wants, yes, a strong and powerful and bold and courageous leader, but one who has an equal amount of wisdom and mercy and care. We long and hope for this sort of human because maybe then all the troubles would go away. Peter is going to be disappointed. Peter is going to be disappointed because Jesus begins to teach and say in verse 31 that the Son of Man must undergo suffering and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise. What? That's not how this is supposed to go. This mission is about life, Jesus, and prosperity and strength for us and suffering and defeat and death for our enemies, those who wish that upon us, not for you, the Messiah. Sweet, bold, courageous, full of good intent, Peter. And for Peter, Jesus offers his most scathing rebuke in all the Gospels. Get behind me, Satan. Because you were setting your mind on, not, not on God things, not on God, God ways, but on human ways. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I choose and God chooses this downward movement of suffering and defeat because that's the only way you hum humans will be spared from yourselves. And if that isn't enough, Jesus doubles down. And it gets really real in verse 34 when it's, Jesus says, And if anyone wants to be my followers, if you want to continue this, take up your cross and follow me. Because those who want to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The gauntlet is thrown down. I'm headed to the cross, Jesus says, to show love through humility and selflessness, and I will suffer so that other suffering may be brought to an end. 
I will be a miscarriage of justice that justice might be known and wickedness exposed. So if anybody wants to truly live, follow me on the road to the cross. During this past week, as I was listening to this passage and reflecting on it and thinking that this story is connected to the transfiguration, I kept coming back to the larva and the cocoon and the butterfly. This might seem like a really abrupt, crazy transition, but most of us experienced kindergarten teachers who ordered caterpillars and put them in a tank and had us watch as these caterpillars ate and ate and ate and ate before spinning a cocoon, right? And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing to see as a kid. And you might read books about this, but you never truly understand its beauty and its just magnificence and the miracle that it is until you see it right there in front of you. One day, these furry little creatures are there, all in the tank, and then there's nothing, just these pods. But within that pod is something that's happening. And we have to wait to see its transfiguration. And nothing can prepare us for the thing that comes in the end. The beauty of what's revealed when the butterflies pop out and begin to stretch their wings. And if you've ever seen a butterfly flap around, it's incredible and it is marvelous and it's amazing that they come from those little hairy worms that you try to avoid when you're driving on the road. During this past week, I was reading about this process, and the reason why it stuck out to me is because I learned something peculiar. I started getting into the science of what happens in that little cocoon, and it's actually pretty incredible, and it's actually pretty gross. Here's a little bit of a summary of what I read. The caterpillar's metamorphosis, or transfiguration, from a tree-clinging, 12-legged pest into the majestic flying butterfly is a frequent metaphor for total transformations. It's a fantastic mechanism developed by nature. Yet while it may may seem fantastic, from the outside, the transformation is gruesome. In short, for a caterpillar to turn into a butterfly, it digests itself using enzymes triggered by hormones. It eats itself. It destroys itself. In order that the hormones then can produce the wings and cells to create what we end up seeing. And I thought puberty was bad. (laughs) (laughs) Through this process, ugly process that happens inside, there's a transfiguration. And the story of Jesus, the story of him going to the cross is something of the same. How can we be unmoved by Jesus going to the cross, becoming ugly, becoming broken, all for us, and in the end, emerging from the cocoon of death into the beauty of a resurrected body? And Jesus is inviting each of us to just that, into an ugly process of taking up the cross and being transformed, not through something easy and glorious, like the way the world would promise that it comes, but rather a life of transformation 
and something that leads to a beautiful life, but goes through a very difficult and sometimes ugly way. The downward way of humility and letting go in pride and all that comes with it. A life that's transformed into something beautiful. And I think this cross-shaped life can mean so many different things, and so many theologians have said so much about what the cross is, but I want to give you three tangible things. It's about forgiveness, the cross is about limits, and the cross is about love. The cross is a word about forgiveness. The cross is the moment when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To pick up your cross and to follow Jesus is for you to wrestle with the fact that God tells you that you are forgiven for whatever troubles and faults and failures are part of your story. But more deeply, perhaps the things that's more difficult to live with and work through is how we work through that in relationship with others. What grudges do you still hold? What forgiveness might you be withholding this morning? What hurts are festering? Or how have you wrestled with the forgiveness that you need to seek out with someone in your life because you've hurt them and the relationship you have is soured or withering? A cross-shaped life is transformed when we wrestle with this forgiveness and have enough humility to engage that process. The cross is about limits. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. It's one of the most beautiful phrases in all the Gospels. Yet, if we take stock of our cultural moment, we live in a time where we have unlimited ways to connect. We consume or binge or stay busy. We live in a society that rarely thinks about the consequences until the actions have been taken or the words have been spoken. We live in a time where freedom is often disengaged from connection or commitment or relationship, but unfetteredness. But how far has that gotten you or us? And how tired are you from keeping up the tent of your world? Because Jesus invites us to take his yoke upon him, to lay down our burdens and find that within the, rest, within the limits of his life, and the limits he sets for us, that these things will satisfy us. And more than that, to take up and learn from his, him is not only about learning how to treat ourselves with care and respect, but living within limits of what we set for ourselves helps to care for others as well. Lastly, the cross is a word about love. The cross is the incredible moment when Jesus shows the greatest commandment on display, to love God and love neighbor as yourself. Our lives are not meant to be lived in love for just ourselves alone. We are created for a beautiful connection to God and others, and when we seek to follow Jesus, we cannot help but seek the good of another, especially those in need. But I want to ask you a question. Lately, how have you been opening up your mind or your heart 
to the potential needs of those around you? Or have you only been paying attention to other people and neglecting your own needs? Because we are to care for others as much as we are to care for ourselves, because we cannot care for others if we do not also care for ourselves in some way. Or how do we love those whom we disagree with or consider our enemies? What would it look like for you to live and care for one of those parts of yourself that maybe you've been neglecting? A cross-shaped life is a life of of loving others, of exploring forgiveness, of, of taking on the limits that Jesus sets for our lives, and seeing that these things can provide transformation in our life and life that truly satisfies The next moment, scene two, moves to the end. It's the moment when Jesus, in chapter nine, verse two, climbs up the high mountain and he's transfigured before everyone. His clothes become dazzling white as nobody has ever seen them before. Elijah and Moses are there and a voice rings out from heaven. This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. In a moment, the whole veil is ripped back and we see Jesus for who he is and how things are. We see all of who he is, that he is the holiness of God, that the Father thunderingly points out that he is the one to reveal the very heart and mind of God and that he keeps pretty cool company. The story called The Transfiguration in this moment, is so important because it not just reveals who Jesus is, but it reveals something about us too. Because in the next scene, it says that Peter gets this and he says this, this is good, let us set up a place here to worship. When Jesus transfigures, Peter is thinking that we need to stay here. It's an instinct to hold on to what is right in front of his eyes, to this good, glorious presence where we see God face to face. And most people give Peter a hard time. But I believe his longing and his desire is also in each one of us. The primal desire for God and to be with God completely unveiled. To bring back the image of the butterfly, the larva eats and eats and eats because it knows that it's created for something more. We live presently and maybe only sometimes come to realization that we're created for something more as well. That we're created for this face-to-face, unveiled relationship with God. C.S. Lewis um, is an author and writer. He's the author of Chronicles of Narnia, and he wrote this essay called The Weight of Glory, and he says this in it. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I'm made for another world. 
If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I'm made for another world. We were made for this one, but something went wrong. And God has shown us in Jesus the one who is making it right and the one who is restoring this world and who will finally restore things in the end. Who will bring about the end of what our hearts deeply long for. That we are created for another country and for the day when God redeems all this world. I pray that that image and that reality sets deep within you and you reflect on that as you go from here. As maybe you taste the longings for something more, as maybe you experience heartache in ways that you wish would end. That we are created for that vision in Revelation 7, where it says one day God will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will worship around the throne of the king. And on that day, maybe we will say with Peter that it is good that we are here. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this story, and I pray that it continues to be a point of reflection for our lives and for our walk. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.